the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Sponsored by the Law Office of Robert Bergman. Welcome to Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. Bob's been practicing law for over 30 years and is certified by the State Bar of California as a legal specialist in estate planning trust and probate law. Bob is here to help you set your house in order with valuable insights you can use today to prepare a better tomorrow for your loved ones. And now your host for Plan Your Estate Radio, Attorney Bob Bergman. Good afternoon, Bay Area. Attorney Bob Bergman, your host for Plan Your Estate Radio. I uh, feel pretty good today. Just finished lunch, and I'm ready to, yeah, I, I take late lunches. I'm sure a lot of you probably haven't had lunch yet, but if you haven't, time to stop and do that. You don't want your blood sugar to get too low. I have a lot of things to, to do today, a lot of things to cover today, a lot of new things that I've read, people asking questions throughout the state. But before we kind of get strapped into that, I want you to know you can call in to me here at 800 516 1220. That's 1220, like the call numbers for KDOW, 800-516-1220. You can also email me at radio at lawbob.com. That's L-A-W-B-O-B dot com. Please feel free to do that. If you'd like a copy of my California Consumer Guide to Wills, Living Trusts, and Estate Planning, or if you'd like to get a question to me, or a comment about the show. I, I do read all emails that come in to me, and I do respond to them as well. So please feel free to email me if you have any questions about the show, or if you have a question you'd like to have discussed on the air. I'm happy to do that as well. Again, my number, 800-516-1220, if you'd like to call into the show. Hopefully I'll get some callers today, because I think um, that works a lot better when you have a talk show if you have people to talk with. I know that it's really exciting to listen to me all the time, but uh, at least my kids seem to think so. (laughs) But uh, I don't know. Out there, you might want to hear some other voices on this radio show other than mine. So continuing with what I've been doing for the last several weeks now, pulling out questions that have been coming up across the state of California from people who have various issues in the area of estate planning, and then giving my comments or my answers on the air. I think um, a lot of these situations will apply to a lot of people out there, whether you're listening or not. If you're listening, you may go, wow, that's the situation that my family's going through, and we really need to address that. So I'm here to answer your questions. I'm here to help. You can always Book an appointment with my office straight through my website at lawbob.com. There's booking links there for various types of appointments. You can always call me at 408-247-0444. I'll either pick up or my service will pick up or you can leave a message for me. You can also go to my website and I actually have a chat mode now. 
So if you want to chat with somebody and make sure that I get correct information to get back with you with whatever your situation is, feel free to go to my website and use the chat mode as well. So today what I want to talk about is I want to talk about, again, some of these new questions and comments that have been coming up from around the state of California. And here's one that probably comes up more frequently than people realize. And I bring this up because when I'm looking at this particular question someone posted just just yesterday, it actually describes a situation that I talk about when I'm giving my Living Trust seminars as a hypothetical situation that deals with the issue of using wills and joint tenancy ownership of property. So here's a situation. This person's husband inherited property which has been used for the entire marriage as a vacation home. The husband, who's the person who inherited, has a will to pass it on to me, the wife. Is it considered community property in California, or is it subject to taxes and probate? Well, there's a lot of questions in there. Here's the big issue, though. Community monies, meaning monies from the marriage, have been used to pay upkeep, taxes, and insurance for 32 years, as well as ongoing family vacations. The property is currently held in joint tenancy with my husband's brother. If my husband dies, will the will void the joint tenancy, or will the property pass to my brother-in-law? This is pretty much the exact situation I talk about in my seminars. I use my hypothetical brother Joe here and say Joe and I acquired a property as joint tenants before I was married. Then I got married, and then I want to leave my half of the property to my wife. So I make a will that says, hey, give my half to my wife. Here's the problem. Joint tenancy is a form of ownership, has what's called the right of survivorship. What that means is that when there is a joint tenant who survives, a joint tenant who dies, the joint tenant who survives receives the interest of the joint tenant that just died by operation of the laws of the state of California. In this situation, we could be setting up a major problem or major issue with this person if her husband dies without clearing up the ownership of this property. If he dies, his half of the property will pass to his brother, this person's brother-in-law, regardless of his will saying, hey, I want it to go to my wife. The fact that community monies have been used to pay for upkeep, tax, and insurance for 32 years would mean that the wife probably has acquired a community property interest in the property by operation of the laws of California, which would mean she's entitled to at least some of her husband's half interest in the property, even if it passes to the brother-in-law. What that may mean is she may end up in a court battle with her brother-in-law over how much of her husband's share of the property really belonged to her under community property laws. Now, this could be cleared up if the husband breaks the joint tenancy with his brother. Sounds like they inherited it from the parents years ago and probably at a time when they were not married and they just put it in joint tenants 
and they've never corrected that issue. So in this case, what should probably happen is the husband should be talking with the brother about ending the joint tenancy so that he could put his half interest either controlled by his will or preferably put his half interest in this vacation property into a living trust so it could be easily passed on to his wife and his children if he passes away sooner rather than later. So that's kind of my analysis of that. And I'm I'm betting it's not an uncommon situation here in California. Now, let's see what we got here. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Beneficiaries on a stock account. The stock account is named as being in a trust, a living trust. Do beneficiaries in a trust where a stock account is named, do those supersede the beneficiaries on the stock account that says it goes to different people? In this case, assets are be divided between two children in the trust, but the beneficiaries on the stock account, where the stock account is being held, are the three grandchildren. Well, here's the issue. The issue is, can someone, by setting up a trust and just identifying an asset, have that asset automatically be treated as part of their trust? The answer is a definite yes, no, or maybe. In this case, the pay-on-death beneficiaries on the stock account would be the grandchildren. They would be the ones to get the property, unless you could go to court and successfully argue that the subsequent trust that identifies the trust as the owner of the stock was intended by the, the owner of the stock to supersede the beneficiary designation. But that would be necessary in order to convince whoever's holding the stock that they should turn it over to the trust to be distributed to the children. Now, after the break, I'll be coming back with more questions and comments. Feel free to call me at 800-516-1220 if you'd like to ask me a question and get a response on the air. Until after the break, this is Attorney Bob Bergman. Talk with you then. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio with Attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. Bob Bergman here. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. I know I am. I'm going to continue on with more questions and comments. But again, if you'd like to call in, it's 800-516-1220. That's 800-516-1220. I'd love to hear from someone today and find out what's on your mind. Now, here's one uh, Here's one that comes out of Los Angeles, California. And this is uh, potentially a very sad situation, and I'm sure it probably gets repeated around the state on a regular basis says here, my roommate of 12 years died. I suspect the person was more than a roommate. I suspect that the person was a significant other. He owned the house. He was going to put everything in my name, but didn't get around to it. said, I was supposed to get everything when he died. His two next of kin nephews are the probate administrators. Do I have any right to any of the estate? We lived together for 12 years, and I took care of him. 
he asked that I stay until he died. Now, this is a serious situation. I think um, in the short answer is that this person is out of luck because it sounds like there was no marriage where where uh, she could assert some kind of marital right or marital claim to the property. It sounds like they had a long-term relationship. Twelve years is a pretty long-term relationship. But the fact that nothing was put in writing indicating that she was to receive the property when he died is a problem. Now, if she lived there for 12 years and took care of him, that implies that he may have been ill or sick or incapacitated in some way, and she was caring for him. So it's possible that there that she might have a claim for, for um, an implied contract with the person who's now deceased called the decedent, it's possible that she could argue that there might be some kind of a uh, of uh, what we would call uh, I'm losing the word right now here. Um, basically, some kind of a trust that's created for her because it was implied that he was going to leave things to her, and in return, she did actually care for him all those years. And that was kind of the deal that they made. This person, though, would have a very long battle uphill to have a right to any of this the uh, decedent's estate because there's no legal relationship between the parties, and it doesn't sound like there was any legal paperwork ever done as well. Now, here's a situation out of the Bay Area here. Uh, it says there was a living trust. Trustor's attorney created an amendment at the time that the amendment was made, the truster was ill but competent. Um, there were no attorney's notes signed by the truster, though the meeting was witnessed by several people, and the truster told other people about the changes. The same day, a trustee was brought in to act on behalf of the truster. Uh, attorney told the family everything was handled, left to type up the amendment, returned two days later, but the trustor was not well enough to sign the documents. So the question is, can the trustee sign the amendment on behalf of the trustor to be sure final wishes are honored? I think my short answer to this question is, it would not be the trustee that could sign, but it might be an agent acting under a power of attorney who is who has the authority in that power of attorney to sign a change or if the trustor is well enough to direct somebody to sign for them, then that person could sign the trustor's name and then act as a witness. Uh, and then the notary involved could put in there that the person was unable to sign, but directed someone to sign on their behalf, what's called a subscribing witness. So that's the possibility. If, however, the trustor can no longer communicate, there may be a difficulty here actually having the trustor's wishes carried out. Now, here's here's a story out of Los Angeles, and, and this kind of thing comes up all the time. We've got a sibling threatening to contest the trust that mom and dad made, but the, but the claims are completely without merit. 
the trust was administered impeccably, but this sibling is bitter and angry. Question is, if there's a no contest clause, what we call an interorum clause in legal terms in the trust, will she be penalized according to that no contest clause? Well, a lot of that is going to have to do with what she's actually contesting. If she's contesting the actions taken by the trustee in administering the trust, that's a whole different thing than contesting the trust. Someone contesting the trust is actually attacking the validity of the trust document itself and is attacking it on the basis that the person creating the trust lacked the legal capacity to do that, that they were unduly influenced by someone who's now benefiting from the trust, that they were tricked into doing the trust, that there was a mistake. There has to be something involved with the creation of the trust itself in order to contest the trust. Going in and complaining and fighting about how it's being administered is not the same thing as a will contest. And here in California, the ability to uh, actually penalize somebody for contesting, um, excuse me, a trust contest, the ability for someone to contest a trust and have them be penalized by losing their inheritance from the trust if they fail to be successful, that is strictly limited now. It used to be much broader. Now there are very, very few reasons why a contest of a trust would end up with a person being disinherited. So here, here's a, here's a situation where uh, parents live in a house that's under their name and the brother's name, and the parents uh, don't do any kind of estate planning. If the parents pass away and the house goes to the brother, can I still get my share of my parents' assets in this house? Well, if the parents own it with the brother... If they own it as joint tenants together, whoever is the last one alive owns the house. If they own it with the brother as tenants in common, then the parent's share would pass through probate intestate, meaning there would be no actual will involved. And it would then pass to the to the two brothers in equal shares, at least the parent's share would. So there's not really enough information to give a complete answer there, but pretty much that's kind of what they're looking at. Oh, here's one. My cousin owns a house. He rents half of his house. Now he, he rents me half of the house. Now he wants me to move out. Said he'll give me $1,000. Well, first of all, if you're renting, you you don't have a right to stay in a house absolutely unless you have a lease. In this case, I'd probably tell him, hey, if he's going to give you $1,000 to move, take the $1,000 and move because otherwise he can evict you. After the break, uh, we're at the midpoint of the show. I'll be able to come back and give you some more information about questions and comments. And so after the break, this is attorney Bob Bergman. I'll talk with you then. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, estate planning trust and probate law specialist, attorney Bob Bergman. Hi, welcome back. We've uh, 
rounded the far turn, and we're starting to head for home here on this Friday broadcast of Plan Your State Radio. I hope you've been enjoying it so far. I know I have been. There, there are a lot of interesting situations that come up here around the state, and I find that uh, the more and more I read about situations, the more I see that they, they seem to fall into various kind of patterns. There's a lot that have to do with uh, making sure that property gets to somebody and what happens if I'm not named, um, do I still get a share, those kinds of things come up seems an awful lot. Now, here's someone that actually has an excellent question, and it gives me a chance to talk a little bit about Proposition 13 and property tax and reassessment tax. Here we have someone who lives here in um, Fountain Valley. They have a home they've owned a long time, so they have a low property tax assessment because it's under Proposition 13. And they want to leave the home to their niece by making a revocable living trust. And the question is, will my home get reassessed while I'm still alive? And will my property taxes go up if I create a trust and name my niece as the person that is going to receive the property when I die? Well, the short answer to that is no. Nothing to worry about. Property tax reassessment only occurs when there's a change of ownership as defined in the property tax laws. And what we might consider a change of ownership is not necessarily what is considered a change of ownership in the property tax laws. In this case, the transfer from an aunt or uncle to the niece, that will trigger a reassessment but only when the transfer actually takes place, which would be on the date of death of the aunt or uncle. It's at that point that the terms of the trust will say the property goes to the niece, and that would be the date that the transfer is considered to take place. Because there is no exclusion from reassessment for transfers between an aunt or uncle and a niece— there will be a 100% reassessment of the property taxes. So that answers that question right there. And, and I think person has nothing to worry about. If you're looking at a similar situation, it's only if you have made a transfer that is an irrevocable transfer, as in you did a deed and recorded it, or you had a trust and you die, and now the trust says give the property to this person, that's when there is the potential for a reassessment of the property taxes and not before that. Now, here's someone whose niece was appointed as trustee of a trust in 2007. Six years later, it was discovered that that the niece as trustee had been systematically withdrawing funds for her own personal use. An accounting was demanded, refused, and then uh, the niece just disappeared, and that was two years ago when that happened. And the question is, what can you do about a trustee who basically stole from the trust and then took off and can't be located? Well, it would be like anybody that you can't locate. You use the various resources available, even to hiring a private detective. I have found, actually, 
that I have located people through Facebook, of all places. Um, I actually located an error for someone through Facebook using some clues that we had. I actually found them on Facebook, contacted them, and as a result, that heir and a sibling and two siblings actually had about uh, $75,000 each of inheritance coming to them. So they were very happy that I found them. If someone's trying to hide, uh, they can actually do it fairly easily nowadays by uh, not having a fixed address, by not having something like phone service um, that identifies where they live, things like that. But I'll tell you, just using some kind of a search function, like a like a PeopleSmart, for example, where you can search for people uh, by names, by areas, uh, Facebook, social media. It's amazing how many people you can actually find on social media. So here is, um, okay, here's one right here. Um, and this is someone who actually referenced a section of the California Probate Code, 16061.7. And this is one that actually has... Um, actually has a lot of confusion about it. The probate law requires that when a trust or a portion of a trust becomes irrevocable, which typically happens when someone has died, that the beneficiaries of the trust have 120 days to file a contest to contest the trust itself. And the question becomes, when does that 120 days start? So here's the deal. If someone's the trustee of a trust and the creator of the trust has died and now the trust is irrevocable, the trustee of the trust is required by law under this probate code section, 16061.7, to notify all of the beneficiaries of the trust that the fact that the person's died, who the trustee is in charge now, where they're at, and also to give them a statutory notice in a particular size font that tells those people they have 120 days to contest the trust. Now, here's the deal. You have 120 days to contest the trust from the time that you're given notice of the trust and you're given a copy of the terms of the trust. So if you just give the notice and say you have a right to a copy of the terms of the trust, then 120 days goes by. If no one does anything, they're done. They can't contest anymore. But if they wait until the 120th day and then request a copy of the terms of the trust, the law gives them another 60 days to file a contest in the court system. So that means it could be 180 days to contest a trust. This is why it's my practice as an attorney when I give notice for a trust administration, give notice to the beneficiaries, I always send a copy of the trust at the same time. And what that does is that means that um, if you do that, they're going to be limited to the 120 days. They won't get the extra time because you've already provided them with a copy of the terms of the trust. So that is really a way to cut that off sooner. And what it means is that until you can actually get that 120 days to go by, you may not be able to do um, you may not be able to do um, a lot of 
things until you know that you're kind of clear to do those things. Now, here's one of those situations that that um, really, really upsets me when I read about things like this. Here is someone uh, who claims that she's the sole beneficiary to the trust of the father that died, as well as the one in charge of the trust. This person is taunting the other siblings of the father that died. Now, checking records, it shows that she was added as a joint tenant on the father's uh, deed on the property. And in July, she filed an affidavit of death of trustee, transferring the primary residence where she had resided as a caregiver um, to herself. And the thing is, she will not provide copies of anything proving that she's actually in charge, proving that she's entitled to everything. Instead, she's just uh, stonewalling her siblings. In a case like this, the siblings may have no choice but to go to court and demand that they see what's going on because they are, as as the children of the person who died, they're entitled to copies of information like this so they could see if they can file for a contest. They're the natural heirs. The natural heirs are entitled to notice of, um, of a trust that has become irrevocable as well. If someone dies and this person was a natural heir, they're entitled to notice as well because they might very well want to contest what was done. So that right there, kind of a difficult situation. I don't know what the family is going to do otherwise. They may have to go to court if the sister who's in charge of things is refusing to provide any kind of information. So, okay, this is a good question. There's a trust that says property's being left to um, this person and property to their minor children. And there's a trustee appointed. The question is, who controls the inheritance for the minors? Well, you have to start first by looking at the trust document itself. If it says the property is to be held in trust for any minor beneficiaries, then the trustee of the trust, unless there's a different one stated in there, will be in charge of handling that property for for those um, those minor children. But you have to always look at the trust document to see what it says. If there is no trust being created, then that means the property would go into a guardianship and the parent guardian would be in charge of it until those children turn age 18. So that's really kind of a short answer to that question. When I come back after the break for the last segment of the show, as we're approaching the finish line today, I'm going to cover a number more of these. Please feel free to give me a call if you'd like at 800-516-1220 or email me at radio at lawbob.com. So after the break, we're going to wrap up the show with more questions and comments. This is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman in San Jose, and I'll get back to you after the break. This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose estate planning attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW. 
Hi, welcome back for the last segment of the show today. If you're just tuning in, you can give me a call if you'd like at 800-516-1220. We have a short segment here at the end here, but I could certainly entertain at least one call to finish out the day. Barring that, I'm going to continue on with the questions and comments from around the state of California and situations that come up, um, seems like sometimes on a regular basis throughout the state. Now here, someone, okay, someone's asking, can someone that has authority under a power of attorney add a person to, uh, in this case, the aunt's checking account to help pay bills Or if there's a conservatorship, can they add a person or persons to pay bills? Well, kind of the short answer to this is, if there's a power of attorney that gives authority to an agent under the power of attorney to delegate um, responsibilities, then yes, you could. Not necessarily to add someone to an account, but add them as an authorized signer on an account so that they could sign checks and pay bills and things like that, but not an owner of the account. If there's a conservatorship, then it has to be something that's specifically authorized in the conservatorship that's established by the courts, what kind of powers or authority the person named by the court, the conservator, has in reference to the property of the conservatee, and that's the person who was conserved by the court. I know it sounds kind of strange, but but conserved by the court means that the court has now put someone in charge of you and your property, and they now have the authority to decide things like your health status and where you're going to live and investments and taking care of paying your bills, all those kinds of things. So here, here's a, a good question. As a beneficiary, do I have the right to see bank statements on an irrevocable trust? I have reason to believe the successor trustee has violated the trust. Bank statements were requested in writing from the trustee's law office and by text, but they're refusing to give copies of bank statements. Well, as a general rule, the trustee of a trust, even an irrevocable trust, is not required to provide bank statements, but they are required to provide accountings. And that means that they have to identify um, monies that came in and monies that went out, what they were used for, uh, if there were distributions from the trust, who were the distributions made to, what was the purpose of the distributions or payments that were made. And, um, And so that may or may not have anything to do with bank statements. Now, if someone is willing to provide a false accounting, then uh, and you suspect that their accounting is false, that actually they are effectively stealing from the trust, then you might actually need to uh, go to court to petition for an accounting, uh, maybe an accounting that's done by an outside person, not the trustee, and that would in fact reveal things like bank accounts, bank statements, and reveal whether or not there was actually theft or embezzlement going on. Now here, here's someone who said they're the trustee for a living trust and their sibling is contesting the trust. doesn't seem like 
there's so many times there's a family member, you know, a brother or sister that wants to fight about things. Okay, there's a clause in the trust that disinherits a beneficiary if they contest it. What is my recourse? Well, the recourse is that if the person threatening to contest, unless they file their their um, trust contest within the time prescribed by law, which I talked about in an earlier segment, by the way, then once they file, then that means the trustee now has to defend against the trust contest. As part of that action, it can be asserted by the trustee in a counter-filing that effectively, (laughs) that effectively, if the person goes forward and they lose, then whatever the consequences are of losing takes effect. And that would typically mean that if you fail to successfully contest the trust, whatever you were going to receive as an inheritance from the trust is now canceled and you are treated as if you were already deceased. That may mean the property passes to your children. It may mean it passes to other siblings or other beneficiaries, but you are treated as dead as far as the trust is concerned. That's actually what a will contest does. So let's see here. I think I have time for maybe one more before we are. Oh, here's one. Yeah. I remember reading this and going, that's kind of a tough situation. Here there was a quit cl- here there was a quit claim deed done by someone and given to them, and then that actually was never recorded, but the friend won't sign a new one because the original was lost. Um here the problem is this person may actually have to go to court in order to demonstrate that they received the property, because if they have a copy, a notarized copy of the deed but it was never recorded, if it was delivered to them, that actually transfers title under California law. So they might have to go to court to actually do what we call perfect their interest in the property. Well, it's been a great day, and I hope you've learned some things today on the show. Um, I'm looking forward to my show next week. I'll bring back more questions and comments. Feel free to contact me at radio at lawbob.com. Until next week, this is attorney Bob Bergman. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to Plan Your Estate Radio with estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, visit lawbob.com, where you'll also find information on his upcoming estate planning seminars. L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob.com. Or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of this station and are for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be legal, financial, or tax advice. Seek appropriate legal advice regarding your particular situation. Attorney Bob Bergman does not offer any guarantees with regard to the outcome of your legal matter. Prior results in other cases do not guarantee a similar outcome in your case. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.